It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. Here with Benji, as always, for the first sprint stage of the Vuelta of España 2021, stage two on the Sunday. They don't normally do it like this in the Vuelta, but kind of a Tour de France-style start. This show is supported by our show partner, LaCole. And if you want to support the podcast, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Over half the people aren't subscribed. If you're listening on podcast players, make sure to subscribe on your podcast player of choice and give us a review or a rating. Even if it's abuse towards me, I love reading that as well, as long as it's five stars. But onto the profile, stage two, 167 Ks long, no categorized climbs. We have an intermediate sprint with three, two, one bonus seconds available with 17 kilometers to go. Benji will talk through his man's tactics for today. At that, there's also sprint points available. And then a pretty uncomplicated run into the line, frankly. Super hot conditions. And uh, just a classic sleepy stage for the most part, Benji. Yes, certainly. It started off quite uh, special, though, because they ran under the uh, zero-kilometer banner at the start of the stage, and it started deflating. It was one of those uh, inflatable ones. They can't use that from next year onwards. So good that that's going uh, out of the sport, because we've seen a few of those occasions before. Nonetheless, for the rest of the stage, basically a break consisted out of three riders, including uh, three riders from the expected Spanish pro county teams that received the wild card, Diego Rubio, Sergio Roman Martin, and Javier Miquel Asparen. I hope those pronunciations are roughly correct, but Asparen is actually a, a pretty decent rider when it comes to his time trial. I think top five in the Spanish U23 ITT last year, and Martin, decent breakaway guy, has a top five in some Spanish race this year, and in the end, we've also got Diego Rubio, who is uh, actually fifth in Boucle de la Moyenne, which is actually a pretty decent race this year so honestly they're not weak but they aren't going to make this because you've got the likes of the Koenig and Grupama wanting this to become a sprint some echelon nervousness but at no point in the race there was an indication that something was going to go loose we did have a few crashes we had Jay Vine hitting the deck with about 80k to go unfortunately on the uh, right side of the peloton and he stood up quite swiftly was uh, just into the ditch but he seemed to be pretty fine. Hopefully, nothing that sticks in the rest of this race. And then we went towards the point where the breakaway started falling apart. Diego Rubio was the final rider that was in that breakaway. Eventually, he got caught as well. But uh, the peloton was prepping for the intermediate sprint. And stuff was about to go down because Astana was setting up for the man himself, the myth, the man, the legend, Alex Aramburu in the green jersey because Roglic obviously can't wear multiple jerseys at the same time. Although... It would be fun to have a jersey with like the red collar in it, the green collar in it. Uh, I'm, I've got an idea there. I think it's been done before, though. <laughs> Total combination jersey. jersey. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> they uh, they went for the intermediate sprint, and Aramburu was trying to gain, I think, bonus seconds, but I think also points. What do you think? Nah, because bonus like seconds, bonus seconds. Do you think so? Because like he can He's get close in green. Can he? <laughs> Come on, give me hope. 
<laughs> I think his first order of priority was getting three bonus seconds, which would then take him three seconds behind Roglic, I think. And then he would, if he came third in the final sprint, take the red jersey before tomorrow's stage, where he'd yep. then lose it on pick on Blanco. So, um, <laughs> he, Unlikely, but, but worth a try, I guess. I, I think it's really good. I mean, why not try? Again, he wasn't yep. far away in the final. And yeah, just the problem for him was... Uh, quick step with Jakobsen who seemed to be going for the sprints. I think Jakobsen took the three yeah, took the three seconds, Aaron Brew's second, but still good to see teams trying and there really wasn't else too much else happening. I think in the intermediate sprint it wouldn't actually have mattered even if Jakobsen uh didn't take that first spot because Aaron Buru taking two seconds would lead oh, him really? into third position. If he gets third position as well at the end of the stage, he would also get those four seconds. So he would equal with Roglic. And I think that the tiebreaker would be the sum of the positions in the two stages that have passed, but don't take my word for that. But uh, anyway, you can uh, continue onwards because it seemed like Quickstep was setting something up with Von Seven on pacing as well. Yeah, we had a furious run into the line at this point. We've got Quickstep with Maori. I think initially Bahrain were riding with uh, Arashiro, then Tratnik, and then they flicked Padun, actually. We had Pidcock working on the front. You marked that as well. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, I don't really understand that, but... um. I feel like there's a few teams who didn't bring enough flat support and they might already be regretting that today, given the first week that we have at this welter. You know, Bahrain in particular, like, well, Paul's not going to get on the front and do this when Amarco Haller would have. It's, uh, I know he's probably got a different program, but it's, yeah, it's the same with Ineos. No Lucro, no Kvyatkovsky. It's a lot of pressure on Narvaez and Dylan Van Balb, who Ineos, you know, did a reasonable job in respect of Bernal. But before we get into the meat of the action today, another word on our show partner, Lacole. They produce performance cycling apparel. And if you have a team or just a group of friends or you need some custom kit, Lacole produce custom kit, have done sustainably for a long time on their website. It's produced in Italy like all their other kit. So if you want to check that out, it's at www.lacole.cc. There's also an LR of Welter 20. That's all caps LR of Welter 20 discount code for 20% off, which also applies to already discounted items. So there are some outrageous deals to be had at the moment if you use the discount code from my perspective. So thanks to Lacole for supporting the podcast. But onto the run to the finish, we had another I hate to see it happen in the tour. It really sucks. I hate that it affects GC, a crash in the run-in. We had, as I said, Padun had struggled to pull and Bahrain had been at the front and then they'd run out of steam and move back. And then there's a crash in the middle of Peloton. All of Bora seemed to be caught up. Yep. Jordi Mayus, Sharkman, although is he really here for GC? Come on, have some, have some belief in this man. <laughs> no, I won't have any belief. Um but yeah, they, there was a crash. It's like at four k's to go. It's just like stage three of the tour. Thankfully, no one was like severely hurt from what I can see. Maybe wait for see what happens with the Bora guys who seen the crash heavily. But Roglic, who was not at the front of the race, was just missed the crash. And yeah, it doesn't. They don't get the same time. Any GC contenders caught behind because they're outside the three kilometer rule. We're seeing now as it's trickled across the line. Uh, guys losing time according to the inner ring and the Flam Rouge. Lucas Hamilton and Adam Yates, 31 seconds. Haig, Carthy and Padun, 38 seconds. And uh, Aaronsman, 
Um, I, I was reading that, the same tweet and I was I, like, he's never going to say Ironsman as GC rider right now. <laughs> what, what, I don't know why is in that tweet. Um, <laughs> yeah, hey, Carlton put on loose 38 seconds, which just sucks, man. Like, it just the three kilometer rule seems to be irrelevant right now. You've got Ineos who still pays after the three kilometer mark. So, if what's the point of the three kilometer mark if teams are still going to pace after three Ks and unbar for Bernal? They've got Yates off the back. No one else was going to be pacing, which is kind of hilarious. Maybe they didn't know, or maybe Adam Yates was like, I'm going to ride mid pack for this entire world. So, that's what I do. And Ineos were like, okay, good luck with that. And he's already been caught out. And yeah, like why not? The GC times don't get taken with three Ks to go. They still have to fight to stay in the group. It's just, it's just annoying because like, I don't, I don't care from a viewing perspective if a GC contender stays with the sprint group on a stage like this. I literally don't care if they ride ten kilometers behind and just roll in. It doesn't matter to me. Maybe that's heretical. I care that it's tight tomorrow and on the mountain stages. I think in the normal flat sprints where everything goes normal and everything goes to a sprint, that's what you'd expect. But I think the exceptions is what makes this rule a thing. For example, if in the last, I don't know, four kilometers, someone decides to start pulling an echelon in an area where that is possible, then it isn't just a sprint stage. And then some victims of that echelon should receive the time deficit of the echelon, you know? So stuff like that. We've seen that before. And I think, was it Gerard Velta? where Gaviria had an echelon of uh, the entire team of the Koenig riding away in the last six kilometers or something. But those exceptions is, I think, what is an idea to keep it, but I agree that it's BS for today. Yeah, I just... Uh, it doesn't give me any pleasure or give anyone any pleasure, I don't think, guys being caught behind a crash. I mean, maybe you might say, well, the counter-argument to that is Bahrain, bring some more flat engines, keep your team at the front, and then you wouldn't have this problem I don't know. Maybe that's the Then Arashira wouldn't be here, so we don't want that. No, no. Arashira would still be there. You'd drop poles <laughs> from what I would do. But anyway, that's a bit, by the by, it's a real shame. We don't have the full information yet. Uh, but yeah, just stay tuned for the GC gaps. Luckily, no one seemingly to like to be properly injured. Just an annoying 38-second time loss. Yeah. Uh, but on to the last kilometer, which has got some hilarious stuff. Uh, we've got Under the Flam Rouge, Quick Step, coming up the right-hand side with Alperson in the middle. Alperson only have two lead-out men, and their second last pulls off with 850 to go, just leaving their last man for Philipson. DeMar gets absolutely hung out to dry by his lead-out. Like, this is one of the worst. I don't know what happened here. I don't know if they he got his wheel on the wrong side. I mean... I kind of blame Demar Benji looking at it yeah. a second time. I kind of blame Demar because mm-hmm. if I got the freeze frame with 800 to go, he's being dropped off on Milano's wheel. The Uscatel rider yields the wheel. Where only it's only six or seven wheels deep, I think, or maybe he's the rider got, got squeezed. Yeah, six or seven wheels deep, and he keeps his wheel on the left side of his leadout man and just keeps drifting to the left. And the leadout man's flicking him with his right to go to his right, and Demar just keeps going to the left. And then has to move up himself. So I'm not sure that's all his leadouts fault on for, on second look. To be honest, what what was your take on it live? I think that aspect is not his fault. But after it, when he's caught out behind and when he's in trouble, he has to sprint in the wind on the left side to get back to one of the leadout riders at the front. And I think it's a second leadout rider that is in fourth fifth position with roughly 500 meters to go. Demar gets to the wheel. 
And his lead out basically looks at him <laughs> and lets him pass him and doesn't do anything. And basically the mouth thinks, okay, I need to stay in the wheel and this guy's going to bring me forward. And they just move back because the first guy's like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to do this. And perhaps it's a miscommunication. Perhaps he thought, okay, I'm done for today. And Demar was like, okay, I, I expect this man to still do the job. And perhaps just a miscommunication there, but it caused Demar to have to go around his lead out who was slowing speed. And he had to try and move forward on the left side, try to follow another sprint train uh, when they started splitting up because I feel like Jakobsen's train was on the left side of the road and the other one on the right side of the road. And yeah, Demar was pretty much done already before the sprint started. But the sprint no itself, chance. tell me more. Seneschal on the left-hand side, as we look at it front on, he's leading out. He's then got Alperson Phoenix, one lead-out man left before Jasper Phillips and Jakobsen's on. Yes, for Philipson's wheel, we have. I want to give a big hats off to Matteo Trenton today. He did an absolutely outstanding lead out. He gets flicked. He's on the completely got two trains on the other side of the road, and he's just launching uh, Milano on his wheel against two lead out men, Seneschal, and then Alperson Phoenix lead out man, Luca Mezgetz. I want to give another shout out to him. He did really well in the Champs Elysees sprint. He does a huge sprint through the middle, completely takes over with Trenton in front of Alperson and Quickstep, kind of mugs those guys a little bit, drops Matthews right onto Juan Sebastian Milano's wheel, who, by the way, just won two stages of Welter at Burgos. Philipson correctly slides onto Matthews wheel, or I think Milano's wheel, which was a smart move because if he'd followed his own man, they would have get been caught on the right-hand barrier. Milano jumps super early. Matthews in his wheel. Philipson and Jakobsen split on either side of Matthews' wheel, fighting for his wheel. Jakobsen goes right. Matthews comes out of Milano's wheel, keeps drifting right, makes Jakobsen go even further, whereas Philipson switches off, comes out of Matthews' draft, then gets the slingshot into Milano's draft. Credit to Milano for keeping the barrier open, and Philipson takes his second Vuelta stage win. I think he only won one last year, in, a, in two years in a row right. after his Tour de France disappointment. Ahead of Jakobsen, Matthews third. I thought quite an interesting sprint, like tactically and how it worked out. How did you see it, Benji? Do you think, yeah, like just, do you think Philipson's quicker than Jakobsen or are we actually going to have a nice little head-to-head battle here uh, for the next couple of weeks? I think we're going to have a head-to-head battle, but I think that Jakobsen has to do it from these sprints more than the slightly uphill sprints and for example i think it's stage four i'm not certain about it it could be stage five but i think it's four where there's a slight uphill finish and that's phillips and territory for me personally if jakobsen wins there then all my logic out of the window but for now that seems to be what i have in mind and there's a few stages with harder climbs in it and there i expect phillipson to survive them better but i honestly don't remember jakobsen's climbing that much because obviously he's only recently returned back to uh form so he could surprise me and be there on those situations but i think we've got a nice head-to-head i'm enjoying it Demar could join it here or there depending on whether his lead out and himself fucks himself but anyway aramburu tried to get that third spot he launched early he started sprinting at 500 to go getting from wheel to wheel sprinting and when you know you're sprinting with a sprint you know that it's unlikely that you'll get there but he actually held on quite well he eventually finished fifth and he did that just ahead of, I think, Minali for Intermarché. And uh, I got to be honest, I saw some subtle deviations to sl- subtly close the door by Aramburu. So I have <laughs> oh. to call it out. I have to call <laughs> it out. But he uh, he didn't do anything outrageous. So it's nothing that actually hindered 
Minali, but it was close to it. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I have to be honest about that. Unbiased about sprint deviations. Wow, calling out your boy. I've got to admit, I'm, I'm a little bit also surprised by his, um, yeah, it's a decent result from him. He's the final top 10 for the stage. Philipson first, Jakobsen second, Matthews third, Milano fourth, Arambru fifth, and Abrastri last, Minali Vermeesh. Fiat Alagard, Soto, Manbench, you mentioned just outside the top 10. I will say if Matthew sprinted straight from when he launched and he didn't endanger Jakobsen, it just made Jakobsen go a lot further. And if you'd watched my Tour of Norway, I think stage two video, I took a, <laughs> did a little bit of a trigonometry Pythagoras class uh, <laughs> for everybody and it makes a big difference especially when you're having to change line that close to the finish in the last 50, 70 metres, you, you go quite a bit further, uh, particularly Jakobsen had to. And it also means you can't – you're just sprinting a little bit off balance, trying to sprint diagonally. You know, you're trying to sprint straight and then you're moving left, right and then you sprint straight, trying to straighten up. So I think Jakobsen 50-50 might have won. But perfect timing from Philipson and, um, yeah, good to see him get that win. And Soto, I think yes. that – Today might not be the terrain that he should do well at. I think I expect Soto to top 10 that punchy finish, that hockey stick punchy finish, uh, three-kilometer climb, stage five, I think, or stage six, actually, stage six. Uh, just wanted to throw that out there, top 10. I feel it. So Roberts remains the leader of the general classification, uh, but he's, I think, only three seconds, two seconds. No, yeah, four seconds, sorry, uh, ahead of Aaron Brew. That shouldn't really worry him before tomorrow. Tomorrow is the first GC test. We have Pick on Blanco climb, 202.5 kilometers. It's a little bit rolly, but then it's nothing in the middle of the stage. I wouldn't be expecting a break to win, nor, um, yeah, I just think Yumbo should control tomorrow, frankly, on the flat. There's a 2.7K, 6.5% climb, 11Ks before the start of the main climb. Don't expect too much there, but the main, the final climb is 7.6Ks at 9.1%. A nasty climb and... Um, I've got a. This is my view, Benji, on how this. If I'm Bahrain, the other teams, how I would play tomorrow's stage, I would just let Roglic take his bonus. Honestly, I wouldn't pace. I would make sure the climb is done really tight, small gaps, which I'm expecting. Small gaps. You're not going to be able to take time, really. I don't see where you can raid Roglic tomorrow. Use multiple team teammates. He should be fresh. I reckon just let him. Go for your best in the sprint in the sort of last six. It's not that steep at the end compared to the middle and try and limit losses. I wouldn't try anything at all or try to put Yumbo under pressure tomorrow. Is that too – you know, I, that's just how I see it. I just don't see the point in, in burning your team, trying something. You might just end up dropping your own team and Roglic taking advantage. Do you see it any different? Yeah, because it's the first mountain stage as well. I see it more as a as an indicating stage. So you ride a stage just at normal – and the results will define your tactics for the future. If you see tomorrow that Roglic is actually somehow not at the top level we expect him to be, then all stuff that you do, magic tactics and so forth, might become useless and you might shoot yourself in the foot. But if you, for example, play defensively and play it the way you should, would normally play the stage if Roglic was not here, then you will have an indication for the future of what Roglic is like and be able to adapt accordingly. But when it comes to the stage, I'm my immediate question is like, who's going to control the stage? I don't think Yumbo is going to control the stage, but oh, really? it's Spain. Movistar's here. Like, somebody's going to control the stage. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, 
depends on the break. Like there's three guys again who are not very strong. You really don't have to do that much work to keep it in check. And um, do Ineos, Benji, do Ineos try and take back some time that Yates lost today? Lost 31 seconds. Is it a climb where you can maybe send Yates early? And contrary to what I'm saying, put Jumbo Visma under pressure um, and see, okay, who's going to react? Is Roglic himself going to react? Is Kuz going to pace or Cone Bowman? Maybe maybe they're aggressive with Yates. Mm-hmm. I think that when it comes to this climb, the middle section is where it's at. And the steep sections start already with 7K to go, which is basically at the bottom already. So it allows for an attack from Adam Yates at the start. And in all honesty, it's also typical Adam Yates to do something early on a climb. So it wouldn't be out of the ordinary, especially it wouldn't especially be against Roglic. It would just be a typical Yates move, I'd expect. But the question is, will Cool respond to that? Will Yumbo decide, are we going to pace that back? Or are they going to send, okay, Sapkas, just follow the attack? Yeah, maybe they attack with Sep Kuz and use him as a second GC threat. <laughs> I mean, why not? I mean, you could, could do that. Uh, I'm not sure. I think it'll be similar to how it played out with Dan Martin and Carapaz and Roglic on those climbs last year. Should be yeah. expecting tight GC gaps, uh, to be honest. But let us know down below or on Twitter at Lantern Rouge CP what you expect from tomorrow. Uh, pre-race. Yeah, pre-race, was mine was Roglic. I think yours was also Roglic. Like, in reality, you might have changed to be contrarian, but I think you actually thought Roglic, but I'm sticking with Roglic. I am doing so as well. Just in case a magic breakaway wins, then I have no clue who would actually take it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, damn it, I should have named something. Oiskaltel, Biscara is why not? <laughs> Mate, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe, I think there's... The GC teams will likely control... Uh, tomorrow it's not it's not so hard and it's quite long so i think a break will cook in the heat but yeah it'd be interested to see how it goes otherwise one nil for philipson so far in the sprints they'll have another opportunity for the sprints in stage four in one that maybe suits michael matthews a little bit more who did look good and in good position on today's stage he was at like 51 odds so not not rated that well by the bookmakers but this is not a deep sprint field otherwise uh, stay tuned, probably looking on Twitter for the relevant news on GC contenders and Mark Padun. He still lives. He's been used to flat duties. He did a 15-second pull. Let's see some nuclear watts on Pick on Blanco tomorrow. Ciao. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.